Welcome to Get Off Our Lawn, the CF Masters Podcast, Episode 5. This week, Steve and I got a chance to get to know Dan Nitro Clark. You may know him from American Gladiators. That's Dan, not, not Steve. Turns out Steve has done some writing for television, too. Amazing what you can learn about people when you get a chance to hear their story. Well, if you don't know Dan from American Gladiators, take a second. Go search for it on YouTube. And you'll see a cultural phenomenon from the early 90s that catapulted Dan and his fellow gladiators to stardom. The main thing I remember of Dan were spandex and spray tans. Turns out, and this really shouldn't surprise anyone, Dan is a hell of a lot more than that. And I'm really stoked to have had the chance to talk with him and learn more about him. Besides his TV fame, Dan has written screenplays, two books, including his latest, F Dying, which is a New York Times bestseller and can be downloaded for free from Dan's website, dannitroclark.net. And don't be like me. I bought the book to read before we talk to Dan, and then he tells us that he's made it available for free to anyone who needs it. We get into life, his story, choices he made along the way to get him to where he is now, how he looked forward and prepared himself for a life after American Gladiators by taking a myriad of writing classes, And we also talk about parenting and why dogs are better than cats, but everyone knows that. In truth, it's a bunch of topics that affect all of us, whether we are larger-than-life television stars or normal people. Dropping kids off at school, hitting the noon workout, doing what we can. Because in the end, we all do what we can to make it work. You can find Dan on all the social medias. Of course, he's on Facebook. He's a member of our CF Masters group. He is at Dan Nitro Clark on Instagram, but you really have to check out his podcast, Calm the Beast, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and whichever platform you non-iPhone users have to use. Enjoy our discussion with Dan, and if you have a minute, give us a like or a five-star review on your podcast app of choice. If you have another minute, tell us who you want to hear from next. Get Off Our Lawn, Episode 5 with Dan Nitro-Clark. All right, let's jump in. Let's jump in, fellas. Steve, you want to kick it off? Yeah, you know, um, you know first off, Dan, obviously, you know, a, a lot of us know who you are from, from you know, watching you on television, uh, you know, years back. And, um, you know, when, when I was telling some people down at the gym today, I said, you know who I'm going to hear? I mean, I'm going to be talking with Dan Nitro. And they and right away, it's not, I don't even have to get your last name. I was like, Nitro. Oh, that's got to be really cool, man. So, you know, I mean, so we, we all know who you are out front on TV. Hey, I even, I even watched the clip on the Ellen Show today when you're on the Ellen Show. So I kind of wanted to do a little bit of background. But I, I guess the biggest thing, and, and after watching you and listening to you on some of your podcasts, the very first question that I wanted to ask you, and I know you've talked a lot about it, is, is influences that have gotten you to where you are today. And I know one of the biggest ones was your mom. Right. My mom was a huge influence, but I think the biggest influence to where I am at today is my innate curiosity. I am so curious, man. I'm curious about everything. Yeah, I'm the guy, if we're all going out to dinner or we're all at a competition, someone mentioned something, I'm the guy Googling it to find out exactly what it is. Right. And I'm not only curious about subjects, I'm curious about people. But the biggest thing I think has been my ability to lift up the hood of who I am 
where I am at my life and kind of examine where I am and always the desire to be a better human being, right. to always to, to improve. And I think that skill set of diving in, regardless of what it was from, you know, when my career ended uh, at football, you know, I played for the Rams. It was just about a year. Then I went over to Europe and I played for a year. And when my career ended, I had to dive into something else. And I found that success leaves clues, right? Yeah. So you take the success principles that you use in one area of your life, and then they transfer over to other areas. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's in the gym, it's stress under the bar. Right. You, you, get, you get under a weight or a new movement, and you're like, oh my God, I could never do this. And then you just continue to show up and, and you get a little better, you get a little better. And the next thing you know, you, you know you're at the games. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, that, it's that easy. really right? the yeah. case with Steve and myself, but okay. <laughs> So I got a question though. I want to take you back a little bit. I'm a San Jose guy. Uh, how the hell did you get up here? Spartan, <laughs> San Jose State fact, the only comp, The only comp got- I've ever done was Moxie, which was at the San Jose State Stadium. What got you up here to San Jose? It's like, so I look at your background. I've, I've, you know, I've been through your books and, and I, I just don't quite get that part. What drove you up to here? That well, helps. They wanted me. It's, it's like, how do you find a girlfriend? Anybody who likes me? How do you find a buddy? Does he like me? So I was, a, I was, a, you know, it's, it's interesting how things in life and, and we're all about the same age where we, for me, I've rarely planned things, but they just seem to happen. It, it's so interesting. So I finished playing high school football. I was not going to go to college. I was working at Sears in a kiosk selling metal etchings, making you know four hundred dollars a week cash, and I was still dating the head cheerleader who worked at Ralph Polo's salon, Ralph Polo Clothing, and I was getting a forty percent discount on clothes. My life was good. While I was sitting there in the mall, my high school football and track coach just happened to walk by, and he said, "Hey Dan, you're really good in football. I'm going to the local JC, uh, Santa Ana College, and I'm going to coach there." And you should come try out. And I'm like, no, 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 man, I'm cool. <laughs> you know, I'm making 400 bucks. I'm still dating Paula Roberts. And then just something kind of marinated with me. And then one day I just told my dad, I said, hey, dad, I'm going to go out and play football. I'm going to go check it out. I went out and played football at San Jose State. Ended up being pretty good uh, and ended up getting a scholarship to San Jose State to play football. Now, this was back in 84, 83, 84, when they were the top 20 in the nation. And John Elway's dad would coach. That's when we were really good. So I went there to play the football and I've never really left. I go up there a couple times a year. I used to have an event called the Gladiator Rock and Run, which is like a Spartan race. I did it for 10 years. Uh, I'm just now pivoting out of that. So I would do the event up there. And then I go see a game or two every year. So San Jose is still in my bones. Nice. Well, I got to I got to tell you what was really funny. We just said that my very first job coming out of high school was at Sears. <laughs> and I worked but that, there, I worked, that was a good job back then, right? I, you know what, Dan? I'll tell you something. I had offered you. Know, I thought I was. I thought I had landed. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm in the where. I'm in the best part of the warehouse. I get to drive a forklift, and I'm making how much money in 1978, 1979? It was beautiful. <laughs> right. That that's when life was simple. I remember my job before uh, Sears. When I think I started working as a sophomore in high school, I worked at Kenny's Shoes and I wore a suit and I felt like I had a great job. You know, I got a, 
you know, touch women's feet all day. Not that I have a foot fetish, <laughs> but as a 16 year old kid, you know, these women were coming in and I thought I was kind of suave and I was touching their feet. But it, I remember I, I still had a line I, I wouldn't cross. My line I wouldn't cross. I'm not talking about the ladies. One day they got rid of the janitorial staff and they said, okay, the salesmen have to clean the toilets. And I'm like, I'm not cleaning it. And I quit. <laughs> I quit. That was my line, you know, but now I, I clean my own toilets. Once so man, help me out here because you, you make it, yeah, yeah, about, about the, foot, the fetish. foot fetish, exactly. Because yeah, that's that's kind of <laughs> kind of freaking me out a little bit here. You make it to the NFL, and you 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 get a year with the Rams. Now that's a year longer than ninety nine point nine percent of the entire public. I know what a lot of people would say though is, you know, did you make it as a pro considering you played for a year, and and then you played in Europe for a year? How does this transition? I mean, that's that's high stakes games. That's the pros. You don't get any higher than that. And then you said you transitioned out. So where, where was your mind after a year in Europe? And, and you know, that's the, this, you keep going and you keep moving on. And that's the part I'm really interested in in people is how do they keep moving on when a dream kind of doesn't essentially evolve to where they thought it might have gone? Well, let me start by saying I have failed. I have so many unrealized dreams. I mean, the list of dreams that I've had that I have failed on that I have yet to accomplish, you know, including going to the CrossFit Games is so long. Uh, I think what has always kept me motivated was the possibility and the words, what if and why not me? So when I quit football, you know, I was, well, when I got cut, I was 23 years old and I still, I think, wow, you know, I played football and, and, you know, what am I going to go do? And that curiosity brought me up to Hollywood. Then after the Gladiators ended, and I'm also a great at preparation. So while the eight years of Gladiator was going on, you know, I wasn't the guy who was just showing up to work. In the meantime, I was following my passion of writing. And I didn't know how to write. I didn't even know how to type because I grew up in that era, maybe like you guys, where they said, take typing in high school. And I said, no, nah, no, nah, man, I'm going to have a secretary. She's going to take diction if I ever have an office job. I mean, you know, I was kind of a meathead. And uh, so for me, making that transition from football, to American Gladiators was just like, this is interesting. This could be fun. Let's see what Hollywood has to hold. And again, it wasn't a plan. I was at a shopping center, South Coast Plaza, Orange County, and I saw a guy who used to play for the Dolphins who had also seen on this HBO show called First and Ten with O.J. Simpson. Do you guys remember that show? I do. Yeah. So yeah, back then it was cool to work with O.J. Yeah. So he was a football owner uh, or the football owner of a team or the general manager, and they'd all had Lawrence Taylor and Roger Craig, all these other legendary guys on and my buddy i saw him on that show and i saw him in the mall and i was like dude you're famous man you're on tv see i didn't know he was an extra to me i just saw him on tv next to oj standing in the background so that's what after football pushed me to move up to la running into the guy at the mall <laughs> and seeing that he was on tv and he said to me i can get you on tv dan you can make 125 dollars a day and you'll be on TV on the days you actually have contact where you hit because it's stunt pay, we're gonna pay you 250 a day. So then based upon that dream of making $125 a day, I just moved to, to Los Angeles. And, that, and that's how life was. And then while I was there, I started saying, well, you know, I better take acting classes or write. So I started prepping skills way before I needed them. Then when American Gladiators ended after eight years, I had already been teaching myself to write, to screenwrite taking tons and tons of seminars and classes and preps and writing screenplays. So a few years after that ended, 
I sold my first screenplay for, you know, over six figures. So I transitioned. But again, it wasn't overnight. It was doing the work before I needed it. I needed the skills. Does that make sense? I think I, I think I'm gonna win the record of talking the most. <laughs> you guys are gonna find this because my ass. Dude, that's talk. literally what we want out of this is your stories, not our stories. And when you talk about selling a screenplay for for whatever amount of money, I was actually really wondering because Hollywood is weird to me. You don't have a guaranteed check right now. I mean, probably residuals or things like that. What is that world to you of like, I need to work on something and it may or may not pan out. I'm, I, I work and I get a paycheck. I know what, what to budget on. And you are all risk. It looks like to me, is that what it looks like to you? That's what it feels <laughs> like. You know, I, I, it's all, it's, it's been all risk all my life. You know, I've always been able, I've been one of those people. And I think this is what makes entrepreneurs as I can live and have lived with uncertainty but also built in with a work ethic, also built in with success from the past and a belief that just an underlying belief that all things will always work out for them because they always have. But that doesn't mean I'm like, you know, practicing the secret, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be wealthy. I'm going to be wealthy. I, I put my head down and I work. I work hard every day. That makes sense. Does it that it does because I, I remember the book, The Secret. And the truth to me was if you think about something enough, and you actually do something about it, yeah, it will come to pass, but you can't just think about it and do nothing about it. Yeah, they go, they, obviously, you know, um, activity rules success and action and suffering. Those are two things that I believe that uh, uh, I have found to be true. I think the challenge with, um, you know, Hollywood is what they call the golden handcuffs. You know, you're always thinking, well, I could go out and get a job today. I could go out and be on a series. I could go out and land another big movie. I could go out and get a, uh, you know, sell another script. See, for me, I got tired. Uh, I got tired of that life. So I started a business uh, 10, 10 years ago and it was an obstacle race business because I wanted to go out and do something entrepreneurial that was more tied to, to my passion. So I did that for the last 10 years. Then about three or four years ago, I uh, started to pivot out of that and started uh, doing seminars started speaking, wrote another book, a second book, F Dying. I'm writing my third book right now called Calm the Beast. So there's different ways. And plus, I was dumb and I was smart with it. So when I was dumb, I did some dumb things like when my friends were buying apartment buildings, I was buying a brand new car with nice rims. <laughs> but I also was smart and invested some money in real estate and, and some other things where I have that kind of income. Rims are important, well. man. <laughs> Right. Especially when you're a young guy, Absolutely. you know, when you're a young guy and, and I didn't have a, a good sense of, I guess, self-worth uh, on, on a deeper sense. So I really needed to look successful. So people would think I was successful by the car I drove, by the girl I dated, by the, you know, the biggest house I could buy kind of thing. Well, you, you know, Dan, and one of the other things that I was looking at when I was kind of, you know, preparing a little bit for this today was, you know, I mean, not only have you done a lot, but it seems that that you are, are a person that is always looking to give back to. And, and I noticed a couple things and, and um, was the Young Storyteller program, uh, 10,000 pounds program, things that, you know, I, you know, I, I think a lot of times people get wrapped up in what, you, you know, again, right? It's like, oh, that's the American Gladiators. You do this, you do that. But I think a lot of times people fail to see and in a lot of people just things they do in behind the scenes that aren't really, you know, you're not a guy that goes out and beats your chest about what you do. I mean, I had to go and start looking for stuff. Right. And, and, and I mean, you know, with the young stories tellers program, I think is amazing simply because 
again, crazy enough, um, I did a lot of writing when I was young. I wrote comedy, tried to sell my comedy to, to shows and do stand-up comedy and in bars and you know. that, that takes a lot of balls to do stand-up comedy. It, man. Yeah, yeah, it um it was interesting, but um yeah, I mean we wrote some pretty funny stuff for some local television shows up here and uh, some of it got produced and some of the stuff came to fruition on TV way back in the day. It was made to watch, but uh, um yeah, John Biner show we had some stuff put on John Biner show and uh, Doctor Bondola, which was a local show up here in Vancouver, so. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's, you know, it's so interesting when you see your words or your likeness, you know, uh, portrayed and being appreciated by other people. It's just a, it's an interesting feeling. Yeah. Right. And I, there's a duality to it. I remember when I, we got American Gladiators and, you know, at first it was such a rush, you know, to, to be on billboards and all these places, you know, uh, I remember the first time as I drove out of my little apartment the first year and I went around the corner uh, where I live in Southern California and right literally a hundred yards from my apartment doorstep was a huge billboard that had my picture and said American Gladiators. And I was like, whoa, hey, that's me. And you took all the pictures. But then it got to be kind of weird, you know, for me. It, it got to be the sense like I go, it would do a uh, an appearance. I get paid a good amount of money for it. And people would be standing in line, you know, waiting for me to sign a picture. And I go, this is just weird. You know, I'm just a person. Yeah. We're all just people, you know. And after American Gladiators, I, I pushed away from it for a long time. I didn't want to be associated. I didn't want to be known. I wanted to find another path in my, my career. And then I, I realized that that show gave a lot of people a lot of joy, you know, and it will always be part of who I am, kind of like uh, Captain Kirk and, and uh, Star Trek. And, and to embrace that. Because it, it, it reminds me as we age how we get wiser. I remember when I was about 40 years old, my mother, and I, I, maybe I was 35, I was 35 years old, that's about 35, and I was, had money, I was doing okay, and, and my mother, you know, one day she just comes to me and she gives me a, a I got something for you. She gives me a check for $5,000, and I didn't need the money. So I said, Mom, I, 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 no, no, Mom, I can't take this, I don't need your money, thank you so much. And she's like, no, no, Danny, Danny, I, I want you to have this. And I took the check, but I just kept, I couldn't cash it. And then I went and talked to one of my, um, my uh, mentors, and he was an Asian guy who was studying martial arts with, and he says, you understand, you're robbing your mom of a gift. And I said, what do you mean? Because he knew my history, because my mom never made more than $40,000 a year. She worked in a uh, factory where they put the electronic parts together. And for her it, to, to save up $5,000, he said, she had to go to the bank, $50 a week for hundreds of weeks to save that money. And each time she went to the bank, she was looking forward to the day she would give it to you and you would be so thankful and grateful and you've robbed her of that gift. And so I remember going back to my mom and just, you know, saying, God, mom, I really thought about this, you know, and I, I got, I could really use that money, even though I didn't need it. Mm -hmm. I said, I could really use that money. And it's that man, it's so kind of you to think of me and, and to, to, to accept that gift. So it's interesting as I age, how, you know, the world has changed around me because I've changed inside. When I was younger, it was all about me. You know, it was all, what can I do? What can I be? What can I, you know, who can see me? What can I get? And then I think for me, I got to a point, a point where mentorship, where helping someone else became just as important as getting a win for myself, if that it makes totally sense. It makes sense. I can tell you though, the one thing that'll kind of make it not about you is having teenagers. They, <laughs> you have teenagers. Steve's, are, Steve's are well and grown. And mine are telling me right now how, how I don't fit into the world. So I'm totally fine with that.
Well, interesting experience because I have a son, he's 32, I'm 55. So I go into the new category in the masters, which is great. All the things that I suck at muscle ups and chest to bars, they're all gone. So that, that that's, that's going to be great. If I can do it this year, I'm thinking about the, the October thing, if I'll be healthy enough, but um, funny you talk about kids because my son is 32, but the girl I've been dating for the last three years has an eight year old son. So I'm, and I've been living with her for maybe two years. So I'm getting to look at parenthood again with a you know 25 year window. And I have to say the second time around, the first time around it was great, but the second time around it, it's, man, you know, I, I wish, and sometimes I feel bad, not that I was a bad father, that I was the man I am today, the parent I am today, that I was, I could have been. I feel that son. way, but I'm going to say, hey, Steve, how do you feel? Would you want to go back and rewrite how you raised your girls? Um, you, you know, what happened with me is um, my girls, again, I've, I've got older, uh, 30 and, and 20, 20, turning 27. And I found that when they turned 10, I became completely helpless and lost for a, a good 12 years. Had no idea what was going on, stayed out of the way. And uh, all of a sudden, when they were growing up, they, they liked me. And I, and, they, and I guess I was right. For the longest time, I had no clue what to do. How old are they now? 30 and 27. Wow. So there was just the dark ages oh, <laughs> for I, a few I, years. I, I have no idea. That's why I bought a dog, Dan. I needed, I needed something to talk to. <laughs> well, I, I, funny. I just got another, I just got another dog. I got a Labradoodle, you know, for, and he's, uh, I've had him for three weeks and I found I've turned into like, I, I won't say the word mother because I don't believe there are things that a man should do or a woman should do anymore. I just believe there are certain things a good human being does. I, don't, I think that line has disappeared. Uh, but this dog, man, Steve, I tell you, man, he's a labradoodle. He's fluffy. I find myself like combing his hair on a daily yeah. basis, you know, just grooming him and pampering him. And, you know, I, I get in the car, I pick him up and take him to the gym with me. He's like my little buddy. Yeah. And I understand that feeling because he gives me a place that's safe to park a lot of my love and affection yeah. that I maybe I can't do in the other places in my life. That makes sense. Oh, I don't know if I need help. I don't know if I need more therapy. Dogs, <laughs> dogs are, are, are amazing like that. I mean, I, I have never had cats, but I just know that there's dogs that I can come home sometime and have the crappiest day. And that dog just looks at me, comes over and it's just like, Hey buddy, can you scratch my butt there? And it's like, yeah, I can do that for you, man. And give him scratch a scratch. You know <laughs> loves that. Just give him a little butt scratch there, a little scratch on the head. And you know what? Make yeah. my day. I'm all good. Right, right. Because it's unconditional. It's safe. You oh, know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I I love dogs. I'm so excited about this this guy. But yeah, no. I mean, you know, in, in all fairness, you know, my girls are, are absolutely awesome. I've got, you know, as like the guys. I mean, I've got her. She's actually in India right now, and I've got my youngest one who's just going to be moving to New Zealand in the next uh, week here for a year to work with. Uh, everybody wants to get out of Canada. Everybody huh? wants to. Everybody wants to <laughs> leave us, which is, you know, which is. Uh, I'm okay with that to an extent. They all want to get out of that weather and I can't really blame them. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, it's hockey season again, so I don't understand why they want to go now, you know, but, uh, yeah, there you go. But, but, but but parenting again, it's interesting, you know, with the, with that 25 year window. And if I could encapsulate it, I would think the the biggest thing I, I, I do differently is I used to lead like my dad did a lot by intimidation. 
and anger with my son. But with him, I led by intimidation and fear a lot, along with a bunch of other good stuff. My son's doing great. He's an attorney. But that doesn't mean the road was easy. Now with my my girlfriend's son, you know, it's more about leading with enthusiasm, setting boundaries, and leading with love. And I coach him like I would coach a client. You know, here's the ground rule. Here's, here's Here's what you need to do to be a happy, fulfilled, meaningful young man. Here's some of the things, here's some of the ideas. So it's a lot about positive enthusiasm, guideposts, motivation, encouragement, and consequences without getting emotionally involved so much when he does not live up to expectation or makes a mistake. Does that, does that make sense? Instead of like, wow, did you? Like, hey, we talked about this, right? Yeah, you knew what was, you know, you knew what was expected, you know, and you di- didn't do it. So now, this is the consequence. No YouTube for that you talked about so clear? as you would teach a client. Do you have like people you coach or are you using that as an analogy? No, I, I started coaching people like probably about two years ago, about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And it was so interesting to me because when I was younger, I physically trained people. You know, people say, Hey, you look great. Can I train? I was like, Oh yeah. I started training like a really small select group of people. And like about a year and a half ago, People started asking me to help coach them, to coach them on how to live a happy, fulfilled, meaningful life, to understand the pillars of happiness, you know, success, health, being spiritually connected, love, and and help them get rid of things, clear things that are in their way so they can live the life they want. And oddly enough, I happen to be really, really good at it. And the things I took for granted in my life that have helped me achieve success and, and happiness and meaning and purpose was basically the framework which I dug out and put down. Uh, and that's what I, I coach people on. It's expensive. <laughs> I'm expensive. And I only take a few clients at a time uh, because I put a lot into it. But again, we go back to mentoring and transformation. When you get a guy you know, who's been on antidepressants for 22 years, who hasn't worked out for 12 years, uh, who's doing well financially, but just emotional health, physical wreck, and you've got him for the first time in 12 weeks off antidepressants and running a 5k within 12 weeks and you got his wife calling you and thanking you and him telling you that you saved him man that is a good good feeling and that feeling is addictive so uh, uh it makes me feel important it makes me feel uh i'm living my life on purpose and it gives my life meaning by helping people transform i so couldn't I get through any answer. podcast without being a smart ass but you rate a best-selling book about having an epiphany moment while you're having a heart attack and changing your life and being more meaningful. And you're surprised that people go, Hey man, can you help coach me about this? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think I ever wanted to be a coach because as I grew up, I was always an outsider. You know, I was, I always liked being like, a, uh, I wanted to be on the Raiders. I wanted to be that guy. I never wanted to be the team captain. I wanted to be the guy on the outside of fringes, you know? Um, so coming in and being a leader and having to coach was a big shift for me uh, emotionally. Do you know what I mean? It was just, I, I always had that romanticized version of myself as a, you know, the person, the poet, the, the writer, the, the guy who's going to go live in a Buddhist temple for, you know, eight months and come back, that, that thing. So I had to knock myself silly and say, well, what are you doing? You, you have a gift and you can help people. You can help transform people in a world that, desperately needs it in a world where obesity can't not can't obesity where uh the psychological problems where anxiety where depression where suicide 
numbers are skyrocketing. You got a gift. You can help people. Quit being a jerk and lean into that. I really don't understand. I I understand what you said, but I'm looking at you. You're still a fit, healthy guy. You were on American Gladiators where a huge part of it was how good you looked and you played football professionally. You were clearly a star at a a huge football program. And then you say you were an outsider and I'm coming at it from a very different world. And I think that's the interesting thing to me about these types of interviews is I can hear people explain things that I didn't understand because I would sit there and go, dude, you were an insider. You, You were on fucking TV once a week. I mean, you were an insider. How do you feel you were an outsider? So you go back to football. When I went to San Jose State, I remember, you know, football is a very, especially at a Division One program, it, it, there's a, football players are a certain way. They look a certain way. They dress a certain way. They act a certain way. I was the guy coming from Southern California who would wear red Reebok high tops to practice. And the guys would laugh at me back then. And, and the coach, I remember Coach uh, Gilbert, who took over for Elway, said, hey, Clark, I want two pairs of those shoes, one to shit on and one to cover it up with. So what I say that so what I say was that's what I mean when I say I was an outsider. You know, you say I was on TV, but I wasn't on a regular program. I was on a groundbreaking program that TV had never seen before. And I ran around in spandex and beat the crap <laughs> out of people. That's not it. That's not an insider. So when I got into writing, here I was a guy who could not type, go, you know, when, by the time he left college, who couldn't put together sentences who started writing and, and telling scripts. Here, here I am, a guy who played professional football, started as a tough guy on TV, and then I've been an outsider in the sense that I'm willing to lift my hand up and said, man, I really struggled with depression. I've struggled with addiction. I've struggled with anxiety. Here's what I've overcome. So that's what I mean when I say I'm an outsider. I'm not a button-down suit guy corporate guy. Oh, it it makes total sense. sense. I I wanted to hear how you explained it. And because this is you. The other thing is just in what you said, most football players aren't encouraged to be authors. You know, you're, you're, and I I think that's probably unfair because especially in today's football, the playbooks are, 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 you know, encyclopedias, you got to know what's going on. You got to be able to read on a moment's notice, but in the end, you're still slamming your body into somebody else's body. What made you get to that point where you're like, you know what, I'm going to try this writing thing. You said you were in the show and you saw it going on, but it takes a little bit to actually have the thought that you can do it. So there was a work ethic that I got from sports, but there was also a sadness and an emptiness inside of me that I didn't have the words in my vocabulary, vocabulary to speak. So I found them on the page. I found them through telling other stories that were similar to mine, uh, the emotional through lines of these characters. And by learning to do that, it was kind of cathartic. When I first started writing, I didn't write because I wanted to. I wrote because I had to. I had things inside of me. So when I was 10 years old and, and um, my older brother was 12, my older brother, Randy, he was my hero. He was my rock. He was everything. I'd been through, my family had been divorced. When I was four, we moved from one family to other states, to other places. And when I was 10, I was with my brother. We were living in Vietnam. My dad was over there as an American civilian for like seven or eight years. It was just him and I and my father and the country was falling. So we're getting ready to come back to America the next day. That night, we stayed at a a friend of mine's dad's house and my brother and I were alone playing on the roof. 
and he kicked this electrical wire and he got into, uh, got electrocuted and he basically died in my arms. You know, here I am holding my hero, holding everything, you know, that means anything, the place I felt safe. And that moment really was who I became, who I am today. And I, my dad, my mom was Asian. She didn't really speak the language and that's not an emotional um, type of uh, 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 culture. And my dad was a Marine who never spoke a word to me about it. Not like, hey man, you know, I know you lost your brother. You know, it's, you were there with him. It's not your fault. This is gonna be hard for a long time, but I love you, you're gonna be okay. I didn't have one conversation with any of my parents. So I had to learn to protect myself to survive. And that was something that I never spoke about. I never talked about. I had friends like in my 20s, like, oh, you had a brother who died? It's because I did not handle the pain. The pain and the sadness was larger than I had the human capacity to hold at that time. And I think that's where the writing came in. You know, I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to tell stories. And I eventually wrote and directed a, a movie many, many years ago that indirectly told that story. And then my first book, Gladiator, a true story of Roy's Rage Redemption is a memoir in that space, but it's not all about spandex. It's not all about, you know, oh, Ice was, you know, bone in this and that this guy was doing that. It was more of, of a little kid who lost his hero, who had a gaping hole inside of him. Uh, and through a lifetime of competing and athletics and, and being told big boys don't cry, he finally learns that big boys don't cry, but that men do. And he finally learns to walk down a path he wants to go on. Does that make sense? So that's where the writing came in. As far as the technical part of writing, it was just a skill set. Read these books, take these classes, wake up, rinse, repeat. Learn to type. I don't know how to type. Okay, how do I learn to type? Buy a program, buy a computer, Mavis Beacon, no, boring. Mario Brothers teaches typing. Great. Ba, 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 ba. Learn to type. Okay, boom, boom. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And even it went, when it went from writing 20 screenplays to writing my first book for, for Simon & Schuster, a big publishing house, I, I was scared. I was for sure, you know, like, like they're going to find out I'm a phony. They're going to find out I have no talent. They're going to find out I have no skill. They're going to find out my vocabulary is very limited because there's only 10, four syllable words in the whole book. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it wasn't just like, I'm going to go do this. It was so easy. I had so much anxiety about it and fear about all this stuff. But the one thing I could get myself to do was to show up anyway. When I was afraid, when I was scared, when I didn't believe in myself when other people didn't believe in me. I had the ability to wake up and take action. And I think that's what determines the successful people from the unsuccessful people in life. When you don't feel like it, when you don't want to, when you're scared, when you're bored, whatever that reason is, the successful people in life can get I got a ton of questions, anyway. Steve, but I want you to hop in here, man. Yeah. And, and again, going back to, uh, to your, to your book there. And, you know, I know that we all kind of came from the same place and you've kind of mentioned it and I don't know how far you want to go into it, but, uh, you know, let's all be honest back in the seventies and early eighties, there was, uh, there was the, there was the, uh, time of, of, uh, indulging as it were, um, with, uh, with more than just a beer. And, um, you know, I don't know if you want to speak on that. Obviously you talked a little, uh, or you, haven't, you haven't read my book. <laughs> in my book, it's all out there. There's more than, there's more than you want to know. <laughs> to be nice here. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we all, not that we all did the exact same thing, but I mean, there was, you know, I don't know when you were, when you were. Let, let, let me help you out. Cause you're, you're, let me help you here. 
uh, about, 50, about 15, 14, 12 years ago, my friend and I, we wanted to become reserve police officers to help serve in the community of LA. And I had to go fill out the, <laughs> the sheet and they said, be honest, you know? And they said, well, first of all, have you ever smoked marijuana? I was like, oh yeah. <sighs> okay. Have you ever tried cocaine? I was like, well, yeah, I was in college. Okay. Have you ever tried ecstasy? I'm like, ah, oh, check again. Have you ever tried, uh, LSD. I'm like, God darn, I was out of time in high school. Check again. Have you ever tried steroids? I said, yeah. You know, when I got injured in 1981, 82, yeah, I did them for 10 years, you know, check there. So I had to check all those boxes. So naturally, even though that was a long time ago, I didn't uh, get accepted to serve my community. Does that help? <laughs> yeah. And you know, because <laughs> I had to do that same checklist with the local police department when I thought I'd be, you know, need to serve the local Port Moody Police Department out here in Vancouver. And they started asking me those questions. And it's like, oh, man, I, I mean, I can't lie to the guy. And it was like, yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, well, I'll be on my way now. Uh, thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for talking with me. Yeah, you know, it's, and, it, uh, what's interesting, Steve, was that I started drinking when I was 10 years old. And again, my dad owned a restaurant and a bar in, in Vietnam. And that was after my brother died. And I started drinking at 10 because that's what I saw my dad do to deal with the pain. So at, late at night, I would sneak into the bar when it was closed. It was a smart little place. I would take the cap off and pour some you know, vodka or some whiskey and start to drink. So I started drugs at a very, an alcohol at a very, very young age as a way to help me cope with feelings inside I didn't understand. And then that progressed in high school as a way to, um, to avoid you know, uh, alcohol, marijuana, uh, quaaludes in high school, acid, PCP. And, and I got really lucky when I was a freshman in high school because I was doing drugs. I was about to get kicked out of school. I was cutting school all the time. And then I met a mentor. And this mentor changed my life. He was a hypnotherapist back in 1978 before anybody knew what that was. And he was renting space in my dad's office at night when my dad wasn't there. My dad did it to make some extra money. And I befriended him and he started to talk to me about positive and creative visualization. And that was something I never heard of. Now we all know, oh, athletes do this, people do this. And it was, uh, it was something that was really, really new. And, and he taught me how to do it, where I relaxed my body and, and created in my mind a, a future that I wanted. And at that time, it was very small, it was just to be a good football player. Because at that point, I had never been good at anything. I'd never been a good athlete. I'd never been good at anything. I'd never been good with the girls. Uh, I didn't have a way to feel good about myself. The first successes I ever had were in my mind through this process of visualizing. My freshman year, I quit the football team, was about to get kicked out of school. My sophomore year, using that one tool of relaxing myself, laying down, seeing myself sack the quarterback, my mom clapping, smelling the sod, hearing the people cheering, that using that one tool, I rejoined the football team and my sophomore year, I was MVP of the team. That's how dramatic the transformation was. And he really, really, um, he saved my life. He, and he gave me a tool, and it's a tool I coach, that helped me become more than I was preordestined to be, I guess you could say. And I used that tool to get me a football scholarship. To get me a football scholarship, <laughs> I used that tool to help me get on American Gladiators. And then, you know, uh, around my my twenties, that tool started to switch to meditation. You know, just as as to do something more spiritually connected. And I I visualize, I would say, or meditate six out of seven days. Now it's something that 
uh, is one. What of do you visualize pillars. now? <laughs> feet. Back to feet. Women's back feet. To feet. Women's feet. <laughs> In Canada, working out. Now, so uh, I use visualization from everything. So sometimes it's the larger goals that I want in my life. My third book, I visualize New York Times bestseller list, right? I visualize sometimes if I'm having a meeting that I want to go well. Uh, I'll visualize uh, being on this podcast and, and it going very smooth and us talking. I'll visualize myself lifting a certain weight at a gym. I'll visualize myself happy, uh, connected um, uh, with this, the body weight, the body fat, uh, living. I'll visualize myself with my family having good time. So I just put things, little, little seeds I plant in my mind of things that I'm either doing that I want more of. I got a random one for you. I was in LA in the 90s. Well, actually, I was more Ventura. Mark and Brian were the big radio show, KLOS. Scott Reif, the Sky Lord, was the helicopter pilot. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I know where you're going. You might not, though, because I kind of went someplace else with it. He was on the show on American Gladiators. And the part I remember when he was doing the recap was he was talking about how tough the show was to do as a contestant because you'd warm up, you'd get your ass beat, you'd have to go full force, and then you'd be down for another hour while they were setting things up. And so you'd be hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. And and I've got a gladiator question, but as I'm typing that out, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm like, wait a minute, that, that's a CrossFit comp right there. Exactly. I, I was going to, that was already in my mind before you, uh, you mentioned that that's that's a crossfit competition so the way it was is we, we were in one huge stage over at universal then eventually over at cbs uh, radford and they had to strike the set and build a, and bring the other set in in between events so not even like a big crossfit event where they had different areas where different events were going on because when it was here at carson there were so many different areas you literally had to strike the whole set and bring the next one up so what we would do is let's say we had a uh, breakthrough and conquer, which was the football game. We would run a bunch of competitors on the first episode through that, strike that, then run a put a second event up, run a bunch of competitors for like twelve shows through that one, and do that so on and so. How'd that work on. for so, yeah. you though? I mean, was it different for you? Like, so so relative to the CrossFit comp, and I think you did Wadapalooza a couple of years back. Yeah, I did Wadapalooza, I think it was two years after my okay. heart attack. I are you going to be competing again? Where, where are you at with that? I, I don't know. Um, I compete with mm-hmm. myself every day. And I compete with the younger guys in the gym every day, even though silently, that's what keeps me going. You know what I mean? Like I, I did this uh, crazy, you know, the salt bike. We, we all know that a salt bike. Well, I'm pretty good on the salt bike, but I uh, had these young bucks next to me. And, and big guys. One guy was 225, other guys 210. You know, big one guy was a division one football player, went to university of Iowa and we did this, uh, 30 seconds on the salt bike, as many calories as you can do two minutes off six rounds and you counted your total calories. So again, it was 30 seconds on balls to the wall on the salt bike, as many calories you could do rest two minutes and do the 30 seconds again for six rounds. And they smoked me, you know, smoked me, but I like that because now what I'm going to do and what I've done is I go do that same workout mm-hmm. again to get better. And this is how I push myself. And then I'm going to go compete against yeah. them again well, and crush them. We're all trying to beat the young guys at some point. I, I work out in my garage so I can only beat myself these days. I think there's a word for that. Yeah, I think there's a there, word for there that. is. 
But what, what was there? Was there a no, question? I, I, I mean, I, that's kind of the thing. It's going to go where it's going to go. There's there's some organicness to it. But when you're at something like a CrossFit comp or a Wadpalooza, do you sit there and go, "Yeah, I, I I did this shit for gladiators for eight years, where I'd ramp up, cool down, ramp up, cool down," or is it just a completely different world? Yeah, you know, I've actually never thought of that. This when I'm at the event, um, when I went to Wadapalooza, when I do the open, you know, I'm competing against myself. I'm also checking the leaderboard all the time to see, you know, where the guys are in front of me. When I did Wadapalooza, you know, again, that was a year and a half, maybe two, no, it was two years and two months after a heart attack. So just for me to be there and to make it, okay. that was the win. And I think a lot of people were, you know, I met some good friends who I'm still in contact with, uh, Matt Beals. You know, the Air Force fighter pilot who's been in the games four times, uh, Jeff Dempsey, uh, Dean Banks, uh, and a couple other guys, uh, Cheryl Brost, uh, Brost Brost, uh, two-time 45, uh, the 49 championship. I met some good friends there because my whole thing was there. I was there to compete, but just me being able to be there two years after heart attack was a win. And again, when I'm there, I'm just looking at guys like Ron Ortiz and Matt and, and these other masters who are my age. And I'm going, man, these guys are amazing and such awe. But again, there was so much joy. Uh, the, who's the other guy who went this last year? Uh, gosh, gosh, gosh. This, he went in the next division, 50 to 59. Uh, I always chat to him online. Oh, gosh. He's, I'm going to feel so bad because I love this guy. But anyway, but I, so I made some good friends for that competition. And for me, it was, you know, I don't want to, I don't have to be this guy, these guys. I just want to embrace this moment and I want to share mm-hmm. my joy with them. And you could really see a difference between at that Wadapalooza, our 50 to 54. Then the younger guys, 40 to 45, 45 to 49, they were out there, oh, you know, it's going to be me or him. And, you know, I can't make friends. At least that was my take on it. And you got, when you get to a certain age, you're like, man, it's just freaking good yeah, to be here. You're still, still at the point of the spear. I got to ask, got you into CrossFit. How'd you, how'd you find it? I mean, granted, you had a barbell in your hands before, but uh, what's the backstory? I had a barbell in my hands. I went on a podcast the other day. It was uh, Mind Pump. And there was great kid, great kids. I call them kids because they're like, between the three of us, we have 40, over 40 years of experience of coaches, trainers. And between the one of you, gym. you have. Said, Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I said, I picked up my first barbell when I was, I think, 12. So I have 43 years of experience. So I was training at the gym, but I was missing something. About Two things. I've always been on a team. I, uh, you talked about the young storytellers, a nonprofit that I devoted a lot of time to happily for six or seven years. They also had a softball team and the rebel also became the manager, me of that softball team. So I had that camaraderie, that team feel, which I really liked, but that went away. Uh, So I was looking for something with a sense of community. I wanted a change up from the gym of like, okay, it's push, pull, you know, biceps, triceps. How much can I bench? How much can I squat? So I wanted a, a, a constantly varied routine. I was looking for community and I'm always opening to trying new things. So Horsepower CrossFit here in Studio City opened up. It was right down the street. And I saw CrossFit before that, but I said, when one opens up in my neighborhood, I'm going to drop in. So I dropped in with a buddy of mine, um, uh, Brody, uh, Brody Hutzler, who's an actor. And he knew Dan Wells, who's the owner of Horsepower, who's also been to the games. And we just started chatting and they're, hey, do this. You know, try this, try that, try this. And I remember distinctively seeing people laying on the floor after a workout. Look at these jackasses. That's never going to be. I mean, come on, laying on the floor. Give me a break. <laughs> Within like three months, I'm that guy laying on the floor. And, 
And I got addicted to the idea of still being able to compete against guys my age with the goal gotcha. of being the so best. So I got to ask, Nitro, who came up with it? <laughs> I actually came up with Nitro. They had another name for me, and it was a, a Vander. So the first American Gladiator interview, you went to this little skanky park. God, that's such an 80s word, skanky. I haven't used that since the 80s. We all know it. We all know it well. <laughs> Skank. Remember, like, you know, God, I've not used that word. I don't even know where that came from. So there was a, a, a dirty, dingy park down the street. There's a first American Gladiator's tryout, and they had three characters you could pick from. Uh, loud, aggressive, cocky. That was a Vander. Gemini, who had the split personality, and Malibu, who was the guy who was, you know, surfing in the waves. I gravitated to the large, you know, cocky, aggressive guy. And then as we got, before we started taping, I said, guys, a vander. It just doesn't sound Laura cocky and arrogant. How about uh, nitro explosive? And uh, yeah, that's so how nitro was born. It's been a few years. Have you ever had a period where you didn't want to be associated with nitro? Yeah, right after it, you know, I, after American Gladiators, I didn't want to be associated with the show. I wanted to be a thespian, a thespian, and I wanted to be known as a thespian and a writer and a director and a producer. And um, like I said, it was eventually I knew that people gave uh, uh, people a lot of joy that show did. So, and, and people are coming up to me every day, and I just said, you know what? Let's just just embrace this as part of who you are. It doesn't have to define you, even though it may. Maybe on my uh, tombstone it will say. Dan Nitro Clark, American Gladiator. <laughs> so I, I guess a, a question that I have for you, and I, I know that a lot of, you know, I mean, I look at, at this a lot, again, just because my girls being the age they are and looking at the, looking at some of the guys in the gyms, if you could give advice to younger CrossFitters, and I was younger CrossFitters, the guys who are the, you know, the 20 to 35s that are moving on that, you know, I mean, like you say, there's a lot of guys with attitude. There's a lot of guys that seem to be sometimes pissed off. like. What would you say or what would you, what do you say to people nowadays that go, Hey guys, I've been there. You got to, you got to start thinking like this to become better people. What is it? What is it that you see a lot in younger people that you go, Hey man, like, like, what do you think needs to change? Like when you see a lot of these younger guys, like, uh, are you talking related to CrossFit well, I mean, specifically? Or are you talking in life? like, like, I was with I, I was with Noah Noah Olson uh, a couple months ago at Dusty Highlands uh, wedding maybe it was t- ten months ago gosh time's going by so fast and I'd met him a few other times and you know he's took second in the games this year and he was sitting across from me and I, like I said I met him before and we chatted and talked to his girlfriend and he seemed to be a perfectly perfectly good young man I think different people have to put different faces on to compete. And some people have that, it's only me, the warrior. Some people can be friendly. Some people like Rich Frowning, they keep their own pacing regardless of who's jumping out. So I don't know if there is an overall message because uh, athletic preparation is such an an individual thing on how to get your motivation and what inspires you. For some people, it's the desire to be the best. For other people, it's I want to show my mom, my dad that I'm somebody. For others, it's about... um, getting a claim and value for others. It's like, you know, Hey, someone said I couldn't, so I should. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fickle mistress. I don't know if there's one piece of advice I could give them all. I can say this. Um, I had knee surgery when I was 17 years old, when I was a senior in high school. And I do remember the doctor saying, oh, you're going to be fine. 
And then when I went to San Jose State and when I was getting uh, ready to go pro, I remember at one of the camps, they asked me about it and I asked the doctor, hey, am I going to be okay? Is it cool to continue to play on this? He says, you're going to be great. You shouldn't have a problem. They just took out all your cartilage. He said, but wait till you're 50. And I said, <laughs> 50. I'm 22 years old, 21. 50. <laughs> I laughed. I go, who cares? I'll be old. And it was almost like that doctor had, um, it was like, it was like one of those curses. <laughs> I swear to you, the day I turned 50, I was like, ow, my knee hurts. I need to get another surgery. Yeah. And now I'm you know, at the place where I, I'm about to get a, a knee replacement. So I would say, take care of your joints. You know, think of longevity. Do the post-recovery stuff. Do the you know, Mark Pro, do the icing, do the mobility. And even though you think this is everything that may feel like everything, like pro football did to me, like American Gladiators did to me, when you look back on your life, it's just going to be a small blip. Right. It's just going to be a small blip. No matter if you're Rich Froning, no matter if you're the guy who's never made it to, to regionals or to competition, you know, yeah. it's just going to be a small blip of who you are in your life experiences. Yeah. And, and you see, and, and I guess, I guess what, what I was saying is that, is that I see this and, and one of the things that I always taught my gals and, and, and that was, um, you know, there, my youngest was a very good athlete, had scholarship opportunities all the way down to Texas tech for volleyball. Uh, oh, nice. Blew her knee out right before. And of course, you know, the way it is with, with, uh, with Div 1 schools, as soon as they found that out, hey, thanks very much, we appreciate it. Hope you get better, but you've got a, we've got somebody else. One of the things that I've always taught them though was, you know, and again, this doesn't work for everybody, but I think it's really important. Sometimes you gotta know when to turn it on and when to turn it off. And, and I saw that a lot that I, I find that the, the, some of the athletes that I met growing up, man, these guys, when it came game time, I mean, there's always, you know, it's, it's the game phase. There was a time that, that they were that happy-go-lucky guy, and two hours before game time, it was a 180 turn where you didn't even know that was the same person. Game on, two hours afterwards, they're back to, hey, you know what? It's already happened. The game's over. It's time to move on. I'm going to be like this in a day when, when the next game is on. But I find that there's a lot of people nowadays that just sometimes don't know when to turn that off. Right. There's that. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of that's kind of a general statement. So I'm not quite sure how to 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 address that for this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I again, it's just kind of more of an observation. I guess I see that a lot. I see that a lot in, in some of the gyms and some of the competitions that I've been at. You know, I, I just find that sometimes these days, like if you want to be if you want to, you know, be a happy person and you're competing, sometimes, you know, it's about turning it off. Sometimes it's about knowing. I think that goes in an area in your life, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, if you, if you look, uh, you know, in the, in the different areas in your life, it's like, okay, which bucket do I need to uh, put some water into? Is it my career work? Is it my family? Is it my health? Is it my uh, spiritual connection? Is it, is it love? And, and I think that the happiness comes when you find a, a balance. Right. And what I'm, what I'm really good at, at is identifying for people what areas, you know, because I think for most people, when you're in your 30s and your 40s, it's about success. It's about acquiring things. It's getting on that hamster wheel to get more, to do more, to be more, to have more, to take all these, you know, things and things and things. And I was on that same hamster, hamster wheel. You know, I needed a bigger house. I need a vacation home. No, I don't need one German car. I need two German cars. And then when I had the heart attack, when the ambulance brought me into the hospital, I remember asking my doctor, I looked at the doctor and I said, hey, 
you know, I got to know. I've had chest pain for a couple hours. Uh, and I said to him, they ran all the tests. And he said, look, you've been having a heart attack for a couple hours. We don't know how bad it is. Uh, we have to rush you to surgery. And I just looked at him. I just said, I got to know. I said, am I going to die? And he said, and again, I was looking for some like a pat on the back. No, we got you, man. Don't worry. But he said, I don't know. We'll do the best we can do. And I was like, oh, man. And in that moment right there, I feel, and I'm grateful for that moment because I feel like I got the answers for me to life before the test. Because in that moment right there, there were only two things that were important to me, the main two things. And one was that I wanted the people I loved close to me, and then I wanted that nothing else mattered. And, for, and from that moment, it was so transformational that I learned so many other lessons. You know, I learned that um, not to waste time on things that do not matter, that aren't important with people who are. You know, those little trivial things that we get, you know, especially with our spouses, the people closest to us, being right, you know, proving our point. I just learned now so much of that doesn't matter. I've also learned to never say someday. I took the word someday and took it out of my vocabulary because I realized in that moment, a guy who was 50, 49 years old, healthy on the upper one percentile of health could die. So I realized at that moment not to take time for granted. So I never say someday. I used to say, oh, like there was a place I always wanted to go and it was Bora Bora. And I was always waiting someday for the perfect time, the right amount of money, the perfect girl, the perfect situation. And once I adapted this, adopted this attitude of someday, you know, I said, no, 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 either I schedule it. Yeah, I'm going to do that in two years from now. And then it causes me and allows me to focus and put other things out of the way so I can do it. So last year, after 25 years of wanting to go this last year, I finally went to Bora Bora because I learned not to say someday, to learn to put the things down that are important to me and to check them off. Because like I said, I learned time. How was Bora Bora? not guaranteed. Bora Bora was boring. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, Bora Bora was fantastic. It was, uh, you know, and, and I'm so lucky. I have a good, great partner. We got on the, we got to the deck of our over hut hotel as we're walking down the ramp to the over the water hotel. She started like getting emotional. She goes, I know you've wanted this for so long and I'm so glad I could be here with you and, and do this with you. So the next two trips are one is Tibet uh, and the other one's a safari. I think Tibet is next year and the safari is the year after or something like that. But, but you know, it's just, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing with your life. It doesn't matter how healthy you are, how much money you have, man. They're just, there's just no guarantees. And this does not make me cynical. It does not make me cynical because I look at people, you know, life expectancies who've had a heart attack under 50 and it's like 12 years, 14 years, you know, but again, you look at the pool of people they're coming from. And again, that does not make me cynical. What it makes me do is do the math. And it makes me very, I'm very acutely aware of the time I could possibly have left. So if I say, if I, if I double those numbers and I live 20 years, you know, I've lived, I'm 75, which is, a, which is a good life. And maybe I live to be 100. But if I just double the expectations and live 20 years, that means I got 20 more mm -hmm. Christmas vacations left. That means I got 20 more Thanksgivings. That means I got 20 more times, you know, per year that I do this and do that. So I'm very, very aware and I guard my time closely. Because this last year, I don't know if you guys know, yeah, I had back yeah. surgery. You, I think you, you mentioned it. You mentioned yeah, it in the group. A, yeah, I had a three-level lumbar. So I did, a, I did a partial fusion, L5-S1. I fused that area. And then the two discs above that, L4, 5, L3, 4, I did a disc replacement. And I was so afraid of having back surgery. But I am so glad if anybody is listening to this and you're looking into back surgery, please, please, please look into advanced disc replacement. 
it is going to be the wave of the future. You can still do things because what they do is they take the disc out the same way they do the fusion, but instead of putting bone pixie dust and bolting the upper and lower vertebrae by a plate, they actually go and they put an articulating and moving disc in there. Most of the dissatisfaction with, um, with uh, fusion is one, that the fusion didn't take, meaning that the bone dust they put in there did not become solid and form one, one disc, one, uh, one joint. And the second thing is what they call adjacent disc syndrome, where the disc above the fusion takes all of the pressure because the joint below isn't moving. When you have a disc replacement, that joint moves, you don't have that. So within seven months, six months, uh, six, seven months, seven, eight months, seven months of this back surgery, three-level lumbar, I back to deadlifting over 300 pounds for reps. It's, it's amazing. But again, I had got a, a breath of and a taste of my mortality because a side effect from the surgery, I ended up getting four blood clots in my legs and two pulmonary embolisms. So I've been dealing with that for the last 10 months. So when you asked me if I was going to compete uh, and do the open this year and I was still going to compete, it's just managing, you know, I've got the pulmonary embolisms are gone. I didn't even feel them. Thank God for I'm healthy and thank God for CrossFit. And uh, the, I still have one blood clot left in my legs. So I'm on a bunch of blood thinners, kind of like Chris Bosch, where he had to quit playing basketball because if you fall down, hit your head, you bleed out. But again, you know, so much to me is just about resilient. You know, I, I don't think what I can't do. I think what can I do? This won't make the podcast, but I'll share it with you. Um, you guys, the interesting thing about talking to people is how they jog memories that they're not expecting to jog. And you talked about not knowing how much time you have left. And then Steve, you were talking about, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. And I worked at a company called Brocade. It was over by the San Jose airport and the running route was over towards the airport. And there's that levee there. And bumped into a guy and, and I kind of saw him in the building and we're talking a little bit. He started talking about his nephew and we were talking about people who are athletes, elite athletes. And he's like, yeah, my nephew, one nephew plays pro ball and the other one played pro football for a little while. And he goes, man, he was just Jekyll and Hyde. He was on the field. He was just so aggressive, but he'd get off the field and he was just the nicest guy you'd ever meet in your life. And he goes, and, but that was his switch. And I was like, oh, cool. And, and we just talked about it for a little bit. And uh, we get done with the run, and I'm like, well, what's your name again? And he goes, oh, uh, Tillman. And oh, you start, wow. yeah, you start wow. thinking about that, Je- wow. that Jekyll and Hyde switch that's, of the ability. That's deep. Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't know how much time you have left. And I'm like, it, and I looked at him, and I, I, I was like, y- you mean the Tillman? He's like, yeah. I was like, it so was that his was uncle. his dad uncle. or his brother? Uncle. Pat, yeah, Tillman's, Pat Tillman's uncle. uncle. Um, oh, and it's that it's, it's a great memory because it's like, wow, you don't know who you're talking to at any time. And also, to your point, you don't know how much time you have left. And, and I mean, this guy put it all out there and didn't, yeah, didn't come did. back. Yeah, he did. I, I so admired him for doing what he did. Yeah, that was, yeah. that was, a, great, that was um, a great book. Too, so, Dan, what else do you want us to know about you? And is there anything that, uh, you know, contact info, did you're transitioning out of the rock and run? Is there anything that you want us to know that we didn't ask you about, man? I believe that for every setback, there is a chance to come back and rise. I've seen it too many times. I believe in the magnificence and the glory of the human spirit. I believe it because I've seen so many people as I've crossed my time across the planet of this, uh, of this great planet we live on. I've seen it too many times of people, you know, rising up after a setback, after having a catastrophe. And for those who 
have so much anxiety and worry, things that are in their mind of what could happen. I would just love if you're listening to this, if you could just put it down for a little bit, because I see so many people who are so worried about the possibilities of the negative things that could happen, that they're missing the joy and the beauty every single day. They're missing the moments of simple beauty and human truth that are in front of them. And one of the big things I did after the heart attack that really, really helped me is I, I learned to practice gratitude instead of chasing gratification. That practicing gratitude of looking at these simple moments of human truth every single day and shining a light on them, things that probably would have passed me by in the past has transformed my life profoundly and substantially. I am now happier every single damn day. But it isn't something that just happened. It's a process. There is work. You have to design your days. But when you take the time to and just put down all that shit that you're carrying with you, man, does your life change and does happiness beat a path to your door? That almost sounded like my TED Talk, huh? <laughs> that, that was, you know what? I, 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 when I, as I was listening to that, Dan, the first thing that popped into my mind was that, that little piece from Enter the Dragon where Bruce Lee is pointing out to a student and he points out and he says, look, and the guy looks and he slaps and goes, not at the finger. You focus on the finger, you missed all the heavenly glory. The glories, and yes. And so, yeah, I mean, that's such a great lesson for people to realize these days is, you know, again, right? It's that whole don't major in the minors. There's so many great things out there. And, and people sometimes just tend to focus on that, that little fingertip when beyond that is, is such amazing things that can happen. I didn't know they had such profundity in Canada. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know Angela. What's Angela Paz? She's going to like, what did he say about Canada? <laughs> so, no, no, you know, I was going to say Canadians okay. know by now that, A, we don't really know where they exist at, and B, we have to insult them on a regular basis, even though they probably have better lives than we live. So the last thing I'll say is like, look, if you've enjoyed this conversation, like I have with you two uh, gentlemen, and I use that word loosely, and you want to find uh, things that I'm excited about and happy about right now, number one is you can go uh, Google Dan Nitro Clark TED Talk. I have a TED Talk out um, that's, God, I'm so, so, gr so grateful. It's been viewed, I think, over 550,000 times. So go Google that, watch that, you get an idea of who I am. If you want to come and, and hang out and learn more about me, you can go to Facebook or Instagram, Dan Nitro Clark, or you can go to my website, dannitroclark.net. And there you can do two things. One is you can download a free copy of my number one best-selling book, F Dying. You can download it absolutely for free if you're listening to this. Like the book came out, the second book, it's transformed a lot of lives. I got and made money off the book, so now I'm just giving it away. Just go there. No strings attached. Just put your email in and uh, you can get a free digital download of that. And then lastly, there's also, if you're interested in coaching with me, you're interested in seeing what I do, there's another tab on my website where you can go click and uh, you can have a free 30-minute consultation call with me to see if you know we're a good fit and I can help you transform your life. Oh, my, my own podcast. Don't forget, Calm the Beast podcast. I have my own podcast where I actually... I, I'm in the interview chair, but I probably talk just as damn much, <laughs> you know, where it's called the beast and it's on iTunes and Stitcher and every other place podcasts are being played. So yeah, I'm sitting listen, there going, aren't you going to plug your own podcast, man? Come on. Yeah, we're there. I just listened I you to your uh, Jen Wiederstorm one and I did just buy your latest book so I could actually read it before we talk. So, uh, 
Which yeah, one what's the F stand for? Gladiator? I can't tell. <laughs> well, if you look at the F, then you see the EKG sign, F dying, forget dying. Well, originally it was, you know, it was originally it was fucked up. But then I haven't at that time, you was a seven year old, six year old running around the house, you know, pick up the book. Why are you using a bad word? And I said, you know what? Right. I can get the meaning across. And I said, no, no, no. It's Thanks for your time, man. Steve, you got anything else for this guy? Yeah. You know, I, I just got to say this. I've been looking forward to this all day. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, again, not knowing a lot about you and just starting to learn more about you, Dan, and now starting to get in and looking at some of the stuff you have online. Um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, I woke up one morning, August 26th, and there's a little happy birthday to, to me from you. And I was like, you know what, this guy took the time out, doesn't need to, doesn't really know who I am. You know, a few comments back and forth on the master site. And yet he took the time out just to go, Hey, happy birthday, dude. You know, just, uh, I was, I was just blown away by that. And it's, you know, one of those things where, you know, you talk about making people feel good. I was, I was like, down in Vegas, I'm going, hey, man, Nigel, <laughs> Nigel just messaged me, happy birthday. I'm, 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 my, brother, go, my, my brother was down in California, I'm going, hey, remember Dan Nitro Clark? He goes, yeah, I know who that is. Oh, got a man. happy birthday from that him. How's your day going? That makes you me know, happy like, right there. Thank you cool, for that man. moment of happiness, man. Oh, yeah, I love it. I love that. Us Canadians, you know, we don't get a lot, but man, when we get something like that, I mean, I uh, Oh, that, I, I'm like that. I'm the champ of my neighborhood. That's that. Thank you for that, Sherry. That was a moment of, uh, of, of yeah, happiness. Thanks for your time right because uh, I love it when someone is who they are. And from the spandex spray tan day, you know, seeing you on billboards <laughs> and you, you really give a shit. And that's, that comes across when you talk, man. And thank you. Thanks for your time. Yeah, I appreciate you guys so much, and I appreciate you guys thinking of me uh, to do this. And, you, you know, hey, keep marching on, my, my my boys, because, you know, there's so many good stories out there. I see them on the master's page all the time. So many people have overcome so much, and the page you and the other admin uh, you guys run, it's given them a platform and a place to be among their peers, to be heard, to be seen, to tell their stories. Because what it does, it illuminates the human condition. And when you tell your own personal truth and you become vulnerable, you share you impact and you change lives. And I appreciate you guys for having that platform and for doing the, the shitty work of trying to keep it up and doing all the admin stuff and, and just, just keep doing Thanks, it. Thanks brother. You have a good it. afternoon, man. All right. Well, if you guys need anything from me, let me know. I'm here. All right. Peace out. Peace out.